0: I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Megan O'Rourke. She is editor of The Yale Review and author of The Long Goodbye and the poetry collections Sun and Days, Once and Half-Life. She's a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and other awards, and her writing appears in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. She most recently wrote *The Invisible Kingdom*, reimagining chronic illness. Megan, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Of course, you know you weave um, your own story about chronic illness through *The Invisible Kingdom*. Can can you tell us just to get us started? What happened to you over the course of your experience? When and how did this all start? And and where are you now?
1: Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I write about is that it's actually hard to tell this story in a tidy way, which I think is true of many people who have complex chronic illnesses. And if illness narratives often begin with a pretty clearly demarcated, even startling beginning, like a fall or a discovery of a lab test that's not good or is feeling very clearly sick, mine was a little bit more like wading slowly into ever deeper water Without realizing that I was getting in over my head, so I kind of had what you know we called in my family like small problems (laughs) my whole life since I was a kid. But I grew up in this Irish Catholic family in New York. My parents were baby boomers. They were very kind of tough upper lip people, or like just you know, bones not broken, you just get on with it. But after I graduated from college in the late 1990s, we spent a week on the Connecticut shore. And I had a kind of summer flu didn't feel very well. And then a few months later started having really startling neurological symptoms as I was walking to work at my first job at at the New Yorker magazine. So I was 21 years old. And I would have these things that I call them the electric shocks. And it was like a swarm of bees would descend on me and start stinging me all over my body. And the sensation was severe enough that if I didn't actually stop and rub my arms and legs, they would start spasming and twitching, or I wouldn't be able to stand up. I would have to actually like sit down on the street. So it was a pretty startling symptom, but no doctor could figure out what it was, and nothing showed up. Well, at the time, I was told nothing showed up on my lab work. I Since one of my doctors have told me that actually these things did show up, I just didn't tell you <laughs> because I didn't think they were meaningful. But it, that's sort of where I think of the journey starting. And soon after that started experiencing bouts of really severe night sweats, which is an odd symptom for a young you know, 20, 21, 22 year old. Bouts of fatigue where it was really difficult to function. My memory started getting kind of funky. I'd had a almost perfect photographic memory as a kid. I was that kid who annoyingly never had to study. And suddenly I just couldn't remember basic things. Vertigo it was difficult to walk up and down stairs. There's a whole host of Often rotating symptoms, right? They weren't always present at the same time. And this kind of continued on and off for a decade. And then my mother died and I got very sick after her death, which had been a slow protracted one. So I was quite worn down. She had cancer and we'd been in the hospital and I'd been taking care of her. Yeah. And I got a virus that turned out to be mono and I just never got better. Right. From there on, I was then 32. So I've been living like a decade with these amorphous system roaming symptoms. Kind of just got worse and worse. And then it took another three to four years to get any kind of diagnosis. And the first diagnosis I got was one of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, so I had autoimmune thyroiditis that presented in a slightly unusual way. It was kind of hard to see on the tests. And basically, the work over the next few years was to that of realizing that I didn't just have one problem. I, in fact, had this kind of cluster of syndromes that, in some ways, might be overlapping and making my symptoms worse. But one of the things that I had was, and it took a long time to realize this, was I had some kind of untreated tick-borne illness. I tested positive for bartonella and then I had a kind of unclear Lyme test. But when I was treated for Lyme disease, most of my symptoms, not all, resolved. And so I describe it as like peeling away the layers of an onion. You know, I got much better from the Lyme, but then I was still having these problems and then I realized I had postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And I was treated for that and then we realized I had ehlers hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome that was making the POTS worse, et cetera. So it was this kind of experience of over time peeling away layers and having to reckon with like my own disbelief even about that, you know, like how could I be so unlucky to have all of these things wrong with me? And I think part of the work of the book is actually trying to provide an intellectual and medical framework for why often there's this kind of cluster of overlapping problems in certain kinds of chronic, complex chronic illness.
0: Yeah, it, um, it's a phenomenal read, and I recommend everyone go, go and read it, because it, it interweaves history and psychology and the challenges of modern medicine and your own story into one book. And, and one criticism that you level at our medical culture, or maybe it's our culture in general, is that we tend to psychologize disease. we don't understand and this ties deeply into your own story with finding out you know these multiple diagnoses over the course of time and the kind of doubt that you encountered in medicine why do you think we do this and how did it manifest in your own experience with physicians
1: yeah um and you know i should add to that the doubt i directed toward myself too, right? It wasn't just directing that toward toward clinicians. I myself doubted the reality of my own experience for a long time, which is part of the, for me, the writer in me is interested in that, right? Yeah. So in the book, I really try to, so so one thing I should make clear is the book tells my story, but I'm a journalist and reporter. I write for The Atlantic and The New Yorker. And so I'm used to reporting and I'm used to kind of testing my own hypotheses through reporting. So when I started writing I really wanted to try to ascertain as a reporter not a you know not an ethnographer or an epidemiologist you know kind of was my experience typical or atypical to the best of my you know to, to whatever extent I could determine so the very first year of writing a book really was a year of just talking to and interviewing other people living with complex chronic illness and what I overwhelmingly found was that people's stories really resembled mine or rather my story resembled theirs which is to say that there was this pattern of it taking many years to get a diagnosis for an autoimmune disease for, you know, even autoimmune diseases, which are fairly well defined. It could be even more amorphous and complicated if you had, you know, a then-contested disease like ME-CFS or myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome, right? So what I was hearing was that if you had diseases that were hard to test for, didn't show up initially in a really clear-cut, recognizable way on tests, that people were being met with a very similar set of responses from clinicians, which almost always the primary response was, maybe this is all anxiety, not in a negative way, even, but just like, I think maybe this is anxiety, why don't you see a psychiatrist, let's treat you for anxiety, let's work on your sleep, etc. Right. So I became very interested intellectually in the question of, you know, why in an age that in some ways is actually hyper diagnostic, right, and very inclined to find a kind of Almost pathological framework for all kinds of things that are organic in the body. Was it really hard for medicine? because it was clearly it was a structural problem, right? It wasn't an individual problem of these physicians. It was really the structural problem that was leading them almost always to the kind of very same set of responses. And by the way, these were people who then within two years that the patients got a very clear-cut diagnosis of lupus or of RA or of, you know, even more complex and and damaging autoimmune diseases. And, you know, so when I kind of, I was at Harvard for a year on a, so I just went around and talked to a lot of historians and economists and physicians and researchers. And, you know, the story I think is a familiar one, but basically when medicine modernized and became the scientific evidence-based system it is today in the aftermath of the kind of advent of the germ theory, we really pivoted toward measurement being the clear cut identifier of a disease, and also to this idea that, you know, Koch talks about in his postulates that in many cases, an infection is knowable because the pathogen acts the same way across different bodies, right? And that the pathogen comes in, it does the damage, and it leaves. And I think what quickly emerged was, therefore, the challenge, which I think is a real challenge, of how does medicine think about, conceptualize, and actually treat patients whose bodies in some sense live at the edge of medical knowledge, right? And secondarily, that I was particularly interested in, as I did this reporting, the research that was emerging, and that I think now is much more on view about the fact that pathogens actually really do seem to behave differently in different people's bodies, which is to say in some percentage of people, different kinds of pathogens, some more than others seem to trigger what we can what we're now calling complex infection associated chronic illness and that until recently that's been very poorly understood it's still somewhat poorly understood and there's just a lot of science still to be done and that therefore the people who were in that category were being met with a lot of disbelief because as researchers like Noel Rose at Johns Hopkins was telling me and other people were telling me we just don't have great tests to measure for what that that damage is and what that, what that disease process is. Yeah. That was a rambly answer, but I hope that was clear.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I sort of thinking about even, you know, I, I don't know if you probably have read that book brain on fire Yeah. by the young woman. Yes. And, and so I, you know, I think about that too, that she presented with all these kind of odd and bizarre psychiatric symptoms and was dismissed quite a lot before they finally landed on this diagnosis, which was of an autoimmune disease where she had antibodies attacking certain receptors in her brain. And it just had not, I mean, it had not been discovered. This disease had not been discovered. So we tend to think that the, the diagnoses that exist are all the things that exist. There's nothing beyond that. And it's hard, I think, because medical education can be so rigid for us to say, There's something else out there that we just don't know. And it's hard for us, I think, to say that to patients. And it's, I think, can be hard sometimes for patients to hear too.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much in what you're just saying. I could talk to you for an hour just about this. But I think, I mean... Uncertainty is hard for all of us, right? I mean, I'm a poet, so I kind of live in uncertainty. I quote John Keats talking about, you know, to be a great artist, you have to be able to live in uncertainty. So, in a way, that quote is the kind of like uh, motto for the book and sort of my goal for all of us <laughs> is to become more comfortable with uncertainty. But it becomes like a really charge. I mean, in no way am I hoping to dismiss the challenge of that. In fact, what I want to do in the book is in some ways point out how challenging that is for medicine because medicine needs evidence. It needs data. It needs to know that what you're doing um, is not harmful, right? That's the hope, right? Do do no harm. So I think that there's a couple of things I'm interested in, which is, you know, A, how do we change medical education to, especially now more than ever with COVID and long COVID, you know, out there crisis of really unparalleled proportions in some ways. Um, How do we bring uncertainty into medical education and how do we think about, you know, the reimagining chronic illness that I'm talking about is how do we make space in medicine in terms of time, but also in terms of the kind of pedagogical approach for the part of caring and the part of medical treatment that is not clearly defined and that has to do with the empathetic connection between doctor and patient because i think that one thing that is maybe really hard for physicians to understand is that one reason that patients can be frustrated sometimes with clinicians is in fact because we so do turn to them as authority figures you know and i think the loneliness and challenges of being sick with something that doesn't go away and that no one understands are you know almost beyond description um and so Maybe irrationally, often what one wants as a patient is for the doctor to care as much as you do or, or to seem to for five minutes, you know, um, and that's hard. That's a big ask on a busy clinician, right? So, so that's why my, my critiques are really focused at the system and saying, you know, I think we do need to create these kind of care centers, much the way we do for cancer care, where we are making room for the complexity and time that managing a patient with complex illness is ongoing, really takes. And then I think we need in medical education to have conversations about discomfort and uncertainty and, and really kind of build that into the process. There's a really interesting piece in the New York Times today about this very phenomenon. I don't know if you saw it, but it's about caring for a so-called difficult patient and what that yeah,
0: is. I, I read that. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I thought it was wonderful. And I was like, yeah, this is, you're getting at all of the challenges. Yeah.
0: Yes. And there there's a lot I want to ask about here. I wonder maybe I'll start in reverse order and ask you a bit about the medical bureaucracy part or the systems part, because it, it does pose quite a few challenges to the doctor-patient relationship. And you know, people who listen to the podcast have heard me talk about there's limited time with patients obtaining medical information to share with other physicians. And, and this come up, comes up in your memoir, The Long Goodbye, uh, as well, where you talk about waiting for insurance companies to imp- approve something over the weekend for your ailing mother, or waiting for appointments tests and procedures for her and maybe you can talk a little bit about how how difficult or challenging it was for you to navigate the system from the outside
1: yeah you mean for my mother or for me or for or for both of us or
0: for both maybe yeah
1: yeah i mean i just the 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 thing you're talking about in the long goodbye is a really extreme example or maybe a good example rather which is that my mother was play a few days away from dying she had um, metastatic cancer that had been managed for a while through chemotherapy and then had really come back and it had metastasized to her brain and you know her doctors had done a remarkable job of keeping her alive for a very long time but the result was that she had this kind of metastatic colon cancer in that was very unusual anyway so what happened was we had taken her to the hospital and to understand what was going on because she was had a fever she had an infection and then it was very clear she was going to die and she wanted to die at home and we wanted her to die at home and we couldn't get her released because they needed to approve a hospital bed. And, you know, she just spent five extra days, I think it was from Thursday to Monday in the hospital. The, the, the hospital wanted to release her. They were like, we are, we share this, you know, but there's all these regulations, right. That I think we need to have the right equipment at home. And I just thought whatever got us to this point, what, isn't fixing the problem it was supposed to fix, right? It's not, it's not helping her, her doctors. Yes, we were all worried about her falling, but, you know, honestly, in a way that was the least of the concerns at that point. (laughs) So I think that, you know, when you are not familiar with the medical system and you don't work in it, you're not trained in it, and you're a patient trying to navigate care and navigate this bureaucracy, it's just incredibly challenging and often quite demoralizing because I think as doctors know more than anyone, the, the family, the patient, the person, you're, you're in a kind of a, a crisis of meaning as well as a crisis of health, right? And you're sometimes in mortal crisis. And to be then mired in these regulations and rules and, and uncertainty about how to how to reach someone to just ask a simple question, I think brings a whole level of anguish that I don't think anyone wants. You know, and um I can't remember where I was reading this. I was reading last week that models where the patient or the family member can reach the doctor for to ask a brief question where they feel empowered to, to access information via their trusted provider. Their perception of care and their perception of their own well-being rises tremendously, right? So having that agency, I think, in the face of, um, and so then the question is, how does that work for very busy doctors if you can't get phone calls from patients all day long? But this was some paper where people were interested in looking at these models where people could actually reach a kind of care team. So there's just a lot about the system that I do think we need to rethink and you know, it's like very quite Kafka-esque, right? I was struck reading about Obamacare. I was reporting a lot on Obamacare and I remember reading about, you know, some of the regulations that were put in place to actually try to help the care for chronically ill people were things like the hospital gets kind of punished or fined if the patient comes back really quickly. But there was an account of someone where that just meant that the hospital was trying to keep them out of coming back and they really needed the <laughs> You're just like so. It was one of those moments. Where I was like, "Oh my god, this is it's such a headache." Like, how do you solve for the problem without some trust in humans, <laughs> right? Like, an individual humans making individual good decisions. Very, very tricky. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is, and and you know, so like I counter this stuff all the time. I mean, we've had a couple of patients who have more or less transitioned to hospice care while on our neurology service, and. They sit. They lay there for days because we were waiting for insurance or some bureaucratic approval for them to get released to a a palliative care or hospice institution or to go home with hospice. And it it's crazy because they're sitting in a hospital with sick patients around, and it's not exactly a peaceful place while they wait for. Paperwork to get done—it's—it's it's totally nuts.
1: Well, now with COVID too, right? It gets even a little more complicated because the, I mean, there's always the risk of infection in a hospital, and now there's like a whole new kind of damaging infection. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. How do we? How do you change? It? I mean, when I was reporting really deeply on the system, it does seem to me that having a very fragmented insurance system is not helping. Right. I mean, that seems pretty clear that that's just like adding layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy you know, whatever you feel about a single payer system or other systems. It's like, it's just more bureaucracy to have the system we have.
0: It is. And it, this is even true of getting patients to, to rehab facilities to get stronger. They're done with medical workup. We know what's going on. They need to get stronger. It takes days for insurance companies to approve a rehab stay. And so they sit in the hospital and it, it's horrible. I feel terrible for them.
1: Yeah. That happened to my dad. Yeah. He was rehabbing after having sepsis and I was like, right. He was there for days and days and days waiting for the insurance really. Right.
0: That's nuts. I want to ask you about the, the physical manifestations of psychological disease, because it's, it's, as you're saying, this is sort of like on the edges of medicine and, and we know that, you know, stress, anxiety can lead to headaches, or make headaches worse, or lead to an imbalance in hormones that can lead to patients being more susceptible to infection, or even kind of in an area that I'm slightly more familiar with, the phenomena of like non-epileptic seizures, like patients who don't necessarily have electrical discharges leading to seizures, but there's been some, you know, traumatic event in childhood or there's psychological disease, as you call it in the book that leads them to have these events. And it doesn't mean that these events are not real and don't merit treatment, but there's a cultural expectation about psychiatric disease that is off in addition to this cultural or medical cultural phenomenon about you know what we actually know and don't know. And something doesn't need to be organic to be real. How do you think about this? It seems like it's such a difficult thing to to address.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that my book is not primarily concerned with or particularly, nor do I do tons of research on psychological diseases that manifest as bodily symptoms. Rather, it's really concerned with the reverse, which is to say that I'm or or in the possibility of a kind of more holistic understanding of an interrelationship between brain and body, and certainly the immune system and the nervous system. So what I'm really interested in is that in our culture, we talk a lot about sort of somatoform disorders and this idea that, you know, we, we, you know, embody psychiatric stress, but I'm slightly more interested in or trying to point out that often these kinds of illnesses, which sometimes are accompanied by depression or anxiety, are misread as being primarily psychological in nature. And also one of the things that I point out is that we talk a lot about the psychosomatic and not as much about the, what I would call like the soma psychiatric. So I'll give you a really concrete example of what I mean. I have an atypical presentation of autoimmune thyroiditis and that my TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone, never rises when my thyroid hormones go low, right? So it should be a seesaw. So medical science today for ease usually doesn't actually measure your thyroid hormones. It measures your TSH as a kind of indicator of where your thyroid hormones are. But I actually have a pituitary problem. So that never, it, the TSH is not a good indicator. Of where my thyroid hormones are. So for years I was hypothyroid, pretty severely hypothyroid, and no one realized it because no one ever looked at my actual thyroid hormones. And one of the symptoms I had, among others, was anxiety, right? I was like just it was around the time my mom died, too. So I just thought my mother's death has triggered all this anxiety. Finally, this doctor was like, I wanna run full thyroid panel and see what's going on because I was losing my head. You know, it was just classic presentation of being hypothyroid. Sure enough, I was really hypothyroid. She treats me for my thyroid. and My anxiety goes away, <laughs> right? So, you know, and I just have normal human existential anxiety, but like, I'm not actually someone who suffers from anxiety. I'm someone who had this period of having an untreated thyroid problem, right? That was manifesting with some anxiety. So, I bring that up just to say that the, the, it's, you know, we, we have, we're very interested in, it's very fascinating, it's very important even to think about psychiatric disorders. And I think one of the things I'm very careful to stress in the book is that the advances in mental health care and our understanding of mental illness are some of the most important of the last 50 years, without doubt but i'm not talking about psych primarily psychiatric diseases i'm talking about the phenomenon of people really getting misdiagnosed because they have depression either from being chronically ill or maybe from inflammation and how it's affecting the brain that's you know goes along with or is an epiphenomenon on or is a you know another symptom of you know an inflammatory disease process in their body driven perhaps by their immune system right so I think there's so much we don't know about this. And I just, you know, it's an area where I just, I always kind of laugh when I'm not laugh, but I'm always I'm sort of a dark chuckle thinking about it. Cause I'm like, this feels like the area of medicine that like in 200 years, when they look back, this is what's going to seem crude to them. I think not, not because we're not trying, but just because it's so hard and there's so much we don't know about that interplay of of brain and body. So, but what I am really interested in and do try to make the point of is that what is clear is that adverse childhood events, trauma, stress, grief, that can really affect your immune system. And your immune system is really intimately tied up with your nervous system, right? There's all these interesting studies recently on like the vagus nerve and the immune system. I think we're seeing that in COVID and long COVID too, which is that something about the inflammatory response to the acute SARS-CoV-2 virus is really impacting the vagus nerve in some patients who then have all kinds of dysautonomia after the virus, which can look like anxiety, but is really truly like something going wrong with the autonomic nervous system, right? Does that make sense? So I'm I'm really interested in that as a way of thinking about The fact that I think a a kind of cultural problem we have is that we think of disease as a highly individual experience and a very autonomous and isolated isolated and isolating experience. And part of what I'm trying to argue in the book is that there are all these kinds of immune-mediated diseases that in some ways are a kind of reflection of the state of our social well-being, right, and the state of our social connections. And, you know, we we know that autoimmune disease is much more likely to occur if you have a certain number of adverse childhood events. That's really interesting. Something's going on there, right, between the shock of stress and then the the disease. And so, how whether we think of it as it's it's incited by psychiatry or whether it's our lives themselves. It, it, our experiences, our affect actually shapes our immune system and vice versa. That's sort of, I'm looking for this like holistic way of talking about it, if that makes sense.
0: And I'll just add to that, that, you know, patients with seizures, their presenting symptom can be anxiety. It can be an aura or it can be a small seizure. And it seems like they're having panic attacks rather than actual seizures. So this stuff is like everywhere.
1: Yeah. My brother has epilepsy and he's talked about like, he gets a very, I can't even, I won't be able to summarize it, but he has this like freeze for the experience before the seizure, where he'll know it's going to happen. He'll know it's about to happen, and it's this particular kind of affective experience. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Did Did physicians say to you like, "I don't know what's going on"? Uh, you know, how did you feel that the interaction with the physicians? I'm sure there was it was so variable from physician to physician, but in general, kind of how did how do you feel that went?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I compared to some of the experience I heard about when I was doing my reporting, I had relatively good experiences. That said, my, what I primarily experienced was a kind of benign disbelief or that manifested as lack of concern, right? Which is to say that I would go in and say, I don't know, something feels really wrong. This is what's going on. And my physicians would run some tests, and then nothing would exactly show up. And they would say, well, are you stressed? Are you anxious? And I would say, sure, I'm stressed. You know, I had a stressful job. And, you know, and they'd say, well, maybe you just need to sleep more. You know, and so it wasn't unkind. It wasn't um, – it didn't intend to be dismissive. But what was interesting was that there was just this kind of fundamental – assumption that as a young woman, I might be anxious and hypochondriacal. And so that led to a kind of incuriosity, right? I think the, the, what I could say I experienced was a certain amount of incuriosity. And then when I got sicker, and, and I, would, by the way, put some of that on me, because I didn't know how as a young person to say, you know, something really is wrong, <laughs> you know i really saw my doctors as authority figures and so i was a little shy and i just didn't push back when i got sicker i did start to push back and say something really is wrong we need to look deeper and that's where it kind of tipped into something more complicated where a lot of doctors just did not want to to deal with me right there was this kind of but i would say a lot of them did and a lot of those people are still my doctors i'll give you an example my neurologist oh my god she was like the best and what she said to me is she just looked me in the eyes and she said I completely believe you. I had told her about these electric shocks. She said, "I can't find anything." She said, "Other people have told me and described this exact phenomenon to me." We can do. We can put you in a research study. She said, "It's not going to help you," (laughs) but she said, "I hear you and I believe you, and I just don't know what's wrong." And I cannot tell you. Like I walked home that day, kind of on cloud nine, if you can believe it, which might sound you know, illogical, but just, I, she just looked me in the eyes and she saw me and she saw, she recognized the suffering. She recognized her own powerlessness. And so she made me feel like I had an ally, you know, because she really brought herself to that level that I was in of like caring and being powerless. And in a really strange way that helped me so much. Right. And I think you know, I'm sure that maybe not every patient would feel that way, but I think a lot of patients really do want to just feel seen. And when we don't know, one thing we can offer is seeing and saying, you know, I really don't know, but I care and I'm gonna be thinking about you and I'm gonna keep you in mind for research studies and you know, let's call in a consult with this expert because I'm out of ideas. Like that kind of care was actually some of the care that sustained me most in the period where I had no answers
0: this feeling of powerlessness or, or even sometimes this feeling that the, the physicians were incurious, how, how much did it sort of drive you to, I guess, seek treatments that were sort of that beyond the typical realm of like medicine. Cause you talk a little bit about that in the book.
1: Oh yeah. I talk a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it drove me to do all kinds of things. Right. I don't know that it was the powerlessness itself that drove me. I would say what, 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 what I think is easy not to understand about the experience of suffering pretty severely without answers is that it, you do things that may look irrational to those around you, but that you have decided in some ways are in fact quite rational. And this is a point I really like to make because I do think that we have a habit culturally of infantilizing or irrationalizing patients. Right, that that probably as a defense mechanism, probably because it's scary. We we don't really try to enter the experience of those who are desperately ill um, and imagine it. Right? It's it's scary. It's hard to do that. So when they do things that we wouldn't do, we say that's irrational. That's you know risky. But I think what we really have to understand is that a lot of what we do, you know, I I was as interested in anyone as not taking unnecessary risks as possible. But I had just come to this calculation where no one was helping me. I really felt that my life as I had known it was over. I was increasingly losing function. You know, I was a writer. I taught at Princeton, but I was starting to have trouble with like very basic word finding. I would get lost coming home. I would look at a colleague and not know who they were. And so I thought, you know, I may not be able to work in the near future. Um, I couldn't write books anymore. So, you know, in that circumstance, some outside the box, uh, you know, IV therapy, or, you know, it starts to become logical, because you're like, cost benefit, well, I don't have very much to lose at this point, right? So as I talk about in the book, I sort of try to, I'm a little jokey about it, but I'm also trying to animate this, you know, like, I did some of the things that I don't know if you remember Trump's press conference, where he's like, we'll just put sunlight in people's veins, and the COVID will go away. Like, like I did that. <laughs> like, when I think about it now, I'm horrified. <laughs> How could I have done that to myself? Which is to say, like, I'm even today a stranger to the person I was then, right? But that doesn't mean that that person was irrational, right? It just means that that person was, was desperate. Um, so part of what I try to talk about is that I think this is yet another reason why science and medical science ought to think deeply and rigorously about what it means to interact with patients at the edge of medical knowledge, because where science is silent, other kinds of story come in. Um, And one of the things I try to suggest is that some of those stories may actually be really positive for the patient, you know, something like acupuncture, you know, whether or not, and I think for me, probably actually was materially helpful, whether or not it is, it's, it's a whole ritual of touch and connection that is like
0: incredibly
1: beneficial when you're suffering. I think for me too, it was materially beneficial to things like my autonomic nervous system, but you don't even need to get to that place to say like, this is this ritual of empathetic connection be really, really important. That however, is really different from something like what I did when I, took blood out of my veins and it was infused with ozone and put back in, like that's a higher risk procedure, right? There's risk of infection. There's all kinds of things. So I feel like we need to move toward a more nuanced discussion of what it is that people want when they're really sick and what those risks and benefits are and be a little bit less reflexively like medical science, outside medical science, and a little bit more thinking about possible risks, possible benefits and care as a more kind of holistic concept, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. I want to talk to you a bit about mortality. Yeah. In The Long Goodbye, you write, of my many anxieties, the one I was most secretive about was my fear of death. Mm. And in The Invisible Kingdom, you write, I'd always told myself that before I approached the end of my life, I would delete the writing I didn't want anyone seeing all these symptoms that you had, did you feel that there was this impending mortality or a sense of your own mortality? Did did it change the way you perceived death or talking about death?
1: It's a great question. No one has asked me that question. Yeah, it did. I mean, in the section in the invisible kingdom that you just quoted from, one of the things I talk about is that, you know, although It was very clear to me that what was wrong with me was not depression, that it was these organic illnesses that I really did recover mostly from. After living in suffering for so long and getting sicker and sicker, there did come this point where I felt kind of like, is life worth living? You know, so I didn't feel depressed and suicidal in that way, but I felt, you know, just, it's hard to describe, but I mean, physical suffering really... There just comes a point where you're not sure how much more you can bear, right? And I really felt that I was in a state of physical torture day in and day out. And so I think it changed my sense of death in that it, it gave me a very material, lived sense of how the body breaking down can bring you to a place where you're ready to let go because it's just so hard to, to continue. And in a way more than my sense of I mean, so so it gives me that sense that like, you know, there there really probably will be a time in my life where you're just you know, your body just stops working and your mind starts to say, Okay, this is it. You know, you're not necessarily relishing that, but you, you kind of come to that place. But I think what it's almost changed more is kind of like now that I'm, you know, I would say I'm 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 kind of at 85%. I'm sort of 80 to 85%. I'm sort of the person I used to be with limitations, right? So like, I'm actually myself again. I actually can write, I could write this book. I can talk to you. I can experience joy. I can, I have children. So what it's really done is changed my sense of life, right? Which is to say that I think if I used to be not exactly anxious, but a type A person who was like, sweated every detail, I'm just much more like, is this real? i perspective, I guess is the word I'm looking for. (laughs) You know, my husband gets like really worried about little things. I'm like, trust me, this is not worth worrying about. (laughs) Like what's, worth worrying about is when you're like, I don't know if I can like walk around the block and I'm not going to be able to, you know, do any of the things that bring me joy. Like I have that perspective. So I don't, I'm not someone who would say, and I'm really clear about this in the book. I would not say like, I'm so glad I had this experience because it's brought me all this perspective. But I would say, given that I had to have the experience, It did bring something with it that I experience every day, which is just, yeah, gratitude and perspective on what I do have. and just like immense, you know, like lived gratitude every day for having my mind and my energy, some of my energy.
0: We touched on this a bit earlier, this question of being alone or feeling alone. And, And one line that really stands out to me from your work is this. I was alone because of the ways that we have allowed ourselves to believe that the self rather than community must do all the healing. What do you mean by this? What, maybe not solutions, but how do you see us kind of addressing this or focusing, you know, on the community a little bit more rather than solely on the individual?
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's a variety of ways to answer that question, but as I intimated earlier, one of the you know, real preoccupations of the book is the question of what we owe one another. We're all mortal, right? we all live in these flawed, sometimes frail, sometimes strong, sometimes amazing bodies that we do not necessarily have a whole lot of control over. Some, some, we like to think we have a lot of control over it. And the point I'm making is that we, we build all these narratives around personal health, personal choice. Part of what I'm trying to point out is that, you know, you make all the right personal choices, but, you know, if you live in a house that's built on a kind of over a toxic dump and those chemicals in there are what some people call autogenic chemicals and they trigger autoimmune disease, like that's not your choice, right? That's a social bond that's gone wrong. So on the most basic level, I am trying to make this kind of pol- social political point, which is that we, you know, and I think we see this with COVID, we see this with climate change, but like we really are affected by one another and the affects of others affect us. And that's a sort of call to arms for ethical care, right? From all of us. So I think that part of what the the answer to your question is, you know, especially watching long COVID become a problem affecting millions of people. Now we can argue about the numbers, there's a lot to report out and bear down on, but clearly this is a problem of great scope, of great significance, and one that we don't understand very, very well yet. The question becomes, what do we owe them? And I fear sometimes that in our kind of ableist, and I will use that word because I think it's correct here, you know, society, we, we really want to look away from the chronically ill. And one of the points I'm making in the book is that the kinds of stories that I think humans tell, but maybe Americans tell in particular, about illness are stories of overcoming despite all odds or of a kind of spiritualized succumbing to cancer that like ennobles you and ennobles those around you for having witnessed right and what I'm really trying to show in the book is that actually chronic illness you know forces us to look at the messiness the uncertainty the lack of control that we all have but that I really believe that Something powerful comes out of that act of witnessing and listening and looking at what is uncomfortable to look at. And so I think the big question for us as a community is are we going to listen to, look at, and support a society that is now going to have some percentage of either temporarily or long term disabled people as a result of this pandemic? You know, and how long or short term that is, how many people, how severe. Those are all questions to answer, but our lack of knowledge around them doesn't mean that we should say, "Oh, well, maybe this is exaggerated," and focus on that. We, we should focus on what's the need, you know, and, and what is going on, and, and the need that we should all feel to get answers for those people who are affected by
0: long COVID. Right. And- uh, I feel like we this the, this is used in cancer quite a lot. The idea of you're you're going to fight. And throughout human history, the idea of suffering as sort of a this noble thing that you're like blessed with in some way or whatever it is, yeah th- these these things always struck me as maybe a little bit detached from reality, if I can put it nicely.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. My mom, who is like a very direct, she's an educator, you know, raised in an Irish Catholic family. Anyway, she so she lived with cancer for two and a half years, and when she was first diagnosed, it was already metastasized. She's just be like really can't stand it when people tell me I'm so proud of how you're fighting cancer she's like I'm not fighting it it's like I'm trying to have a life with it (laughs) you know and of course from the outside it does look like fighting it because you know chemo is so hard it's such a challenging thing and I think it's part of our wanting to honor the challenges but right the question is what I guess the question becomes what gets limited what do we not see when we use that language right what do we not look at and I think part of what we don't look at are the really messy moments of not managing to fight.
0: Right? So Megan, last question. We've, we've talked about mortality. We've talked about politics a little bit. So now, of course, I have to ask about God, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, in, in the long goodbye, you mentioned praying to God on behalf of your mother, despite the fact that your mother was agnostic or atheist. And did this concept of religion ever come up for you while dealing with chronic illness? Did you ever think about religion? There's that, you know, no atheist in the foxhole kind of thing. But I wonder whether religion played a role, the thought of a higher power played a role for you.
1: I would say spirituality definitely played a role for me. I don't know that religion per se played a role for me, but what I can say is that the experience was... Um, absolutely one that threw me back on questions of meaning, right. And made questions of meaning really not abstract. (laughs) So when I was talking before about kind of, I really do live now with this kind of lived sense of gratitude and it's a kind of spiritual sense of, you know, the joy and the whole, I guess I ended up feeling like the meaning of life, (laughs) is the capacity to feel joy, you know, not the right, not not the right to expect joy all day long, all the time, right? Joy is actually something that should come in little tiny doses, right? It's never going to be, but that actually that, that a good life is a life that, um, where you have the capacity to experience joy where appropriate. And what I felt when I was sick was that that I did not have the capacity for joy, um, in part because the suffering was so extreme, but actually in large part because it went unrecognized and unnamed, right? That 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 was the isolating part that I, I like to say I had two diseases, the actual illness I was living with, or two illnesses really, the disease I was living with, and then the, the pathology of no one acknowledging it, which left me in exile from my human companions around me. So I, I certainly, I did think a lot about, um, sort of meaning and what we owe one another. And I think it, it radicalized me in a certain way, which is to say that I think I went from being, you know, a probably pretty self preoccupied in a typical way, you know, 20 something to emerging in my late thirties, having a really humbled sense of how little I knew about other people's experiences. Um, a really powerful sense that I need to listen to other people who are unlike me Um, and a really powerful sense of our, that a lot of human meaning is in our interconnectedness and in the kind of making that possibility of joy there for as many people as possible. So, So that is something I thought about a lot and really changed my sense of what it is to be a person.
0: On that note, Megan, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you. This was such an incredible conversation. One of my favorite I've gotten to have, so thanks for having me.
0: This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.